If you haven't already, join me in Romans chapter 15, the last uh, sermon in Romans uh, 15. And then, uh, and then a couple uh, weeks away from it, as I said, and then uh, we'll have Romans 16 is all that's left. But Easter's in there too, so I have to figure that out. You, you might think that a guy uh, probably plans ahead further uh, in his preaching, but you'd be surprised sometimes how, how much I just am whatever's next in the book. And, oh, there's Easter, now what do I do? So I don't know yet. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing for Easter, if Romans 16 will fit or, or, or we'll pause, we'll see. Um, so we come to the end of chapter 15 in this section of Paul's letter to the Romans in verses 30 to, to 33 under the title, Paul's Plea or Request for Prayer. At the beginning of the letter, Romans chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, Paul assured the Roman Christians that he prayed for them. He was praying for them often. Now towards the end of the letter, what we find is the great apostle asking the Roman Christians to pray for him and with specific prayer requests. And as you know, Paul very frequently requests prayers in his letters. I don't know if you noticed that. I'll I'll give you a few examples, but uh, it's almost in all of them. For instance, in Ephesians 6, towards the end of that chapter, Paul wrote to the Ephesian Christians, quote, Also praying for me, praying for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And in Colossians 4, Paul wrote to the Colossian Christians, quote, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, he wrote simply, Brothers, pray for us. And in 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 and 2, he wrote, quote, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. Those are some examples. The prayer request, as it were, the prayer request here in Romans 15 is, it's not just a request. It's really more than a request. It's a, it's a plea. Some have said begging, but that seems unseemly, a bit strong. But it is a strong and impassioned plea, no doubt, because of the difficulties Paul foresaw in going to Jerusalem. In these verses, Paul describes prayer as a struggle and brings in each member of the Trinity, and then he makes his requests. Paul summons the Romans to pray for the collection that he's been gathering around the Mediterranean in his church planting efforts, this collection that is about to be delivered to Jerusalem, and then he prays also for his protection there, that he would be able to deliver it. If Paul is spared and the collection is a success, then he says, if you recall, that he would 
be planning to visit them in Rome and then to be sent by them to Spain. But in Rome, he's looking forward to joy and rest among the brothers and sisters before he heads to Spain. John Murray says of these verses, God answered the prayers, but not in the ways that Paul had hoped for or anticipated. The lessons to be derived from verses 30 to 33, that's our text, are numberless, end quote. He's right, and so we'll talk about that, that none of us prays as well or as fervently or with as much understanding as we should. There is much for us to remember and learn in Paul's plea for prayer. Let's pray, though, ourselves here once again and ask the Lord's help before we read this prayer request from Paul and then, and then work through it looking for help and growth. Let's pray. Father, we look to you again and we ask that you would come and minister to us by way of your word, that in considering Paul's request for for prayer from the brothers and sisters in Rome, that we would learn about prayer further, that we would be humbled and not just defeated, but that we would be spurred on to growth in prayer. With Paul, with these brothers and sisters at the time, that we would, that we would pray selflessly for the work of the gospel, for the safety of those who, who do it, and for ourselves, that we would honor you and bring glory to you in our lives as Christians. So now as we consider this, this your word, pray, Father, that you'd give us a sweet submission to it and a desire to, to learn and to change, and that by your Spirit you would, you would uh, produce that change. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Romans 15, 30 to 33. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. The holy and inerrant Word of God. All right, three points today, just breaking the text up. In three sections. Point number one, verse 30, Paul and prayer. Paul and prayer. Verse, just verse 30. So Paul is writing this letter. It's coming to a conclusion, and he knows that before him are some great responsibilities and some great opportunities and some great opposition and, frankly, a lot of potential peril. And so Paul asks these Christians in Rome to pray. I appeal to you, brothers. This is not just a list of prayer requests. I appeal to you, brothers. Would you not pray for me? By 
that is by means of, even on the basis of, our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, that is, believers' love for one another, which is inspired and empowered by the Holy Spirit. I appeal to you, brothers, on the basis of our shared familyness in Christ and by the Spirit that draws us together and, and shapes all of our love for one another and empowers us, on the basis of this, our identity together in Christ and in the Spirit, won't you pray for me? Won't you strive together with me in your prayers to God for me on my behalf? That's an impassioned plea, even a command. The verb behind the, the word translated appeal in the ESV it conveys the idea of wrestling, I read in my studies. It conveys the idea of wrestling as Jacob wrestled with God at Bethel in Genesis 32. The idea is that prayer involves discipline, energy, and earnestness. And that it will cost something. Paul calls for the Romans to partner with him in prayer because of their unity in Christ and the love that the Spirit has shed in their hearts together for, for him. We're in this together, not only the family of God now and forever, but the mission, the journey, the struggle. Pray with me, he says. Pray for me. Again, none of us prays as well as we could or as well as we ought that is, fervently, often, and at great length, or with as much understanding as we should. It's true, isn't it, that if you want to make a Christian feel guilty, just uh, bring up prayer or evangelism uh, or giving. And, and we, we are pretty easily reminded of our shortcomings in those areas. But here we're called to further faithfulness, as Paul calls the Romans to, to pray for him. One of the reasons why we do not pray as we should is that we do not realize the seriousness of what is actually going on, especially on our part of it. According to Paul also in Ephesians 6, as you may know, Paul writes that we are involved in fierce spiritual warfare and prayer is given to us to speak with our king who supplies us and provides for us in the battle. Paul realized and understood this intensely, which is why he engages the believers at Rome to join his struggles by praying to the king on his behalf. He knew that in his particular part of the battle, he was facing steep odds, uh, horizontally speaking, from what he could tell. He was facing steep odds, a stiff wind, and he wanted, pleaded for them to pray to God on his behalf for the upcoming battles he knew he was facing. One preacher, James Montgomery Boyce, wrote, quote, This, then, is why prayer is not a useless exercise. Perhaps, by the way, that's another reason we don't pray. We think, generally speaking, it's rather useless. 
when we can take care of it ourselves. Boyce. This then he preached and wrote, that this then is why prayer is not a useless exercise. We are engaged in a great spiritual struggle against the devil and his schemes, and prayer is the only way we can participate in it. End quote. Our enemy is the devil, and we cannot expect things to be easy when we are struggling with him for the souls of men and women and to do the things of God in God's world, which Satan opposes. Again, prayer is difficult because we do not know God as we ought or God's ways as we ought to know them. We are helped by the Spirit in prayer, praise God, as Paul had written earlier in Romans 8, if you recall. But we are also called to grow in our knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ and to grow in our knowledge of God's Word and will so that our prayers might be more true and more, more God-centered and more selfless or others-focused, more accurate, more understanding. Our praying and our prayers will only be helped as we do grow in the Word and in the knowledge of God. But before we move on into verses 31 and 32, let's, let's borrow from those verses, just pull something in here while still considering just verse 31 and prayer more generally. And let me suggest one other reason why prayer is difficult for us based on what we find in Romans. I've alluded to it here and there, and it's this. We are, by and large, too self-centered in our prayers. We tend to only think of prayer as getting stuff we want and too often only stuff for ourselves. I would here simply draw your attention to how unselfish Paul's prayer requests were. Perhaps they were more clear on that point in the ones I read earlier, and it seems like, yeah, well, he's praying for his safety. You know, that's kind of selfish. He's praying that he'd survive, that he'd be successful. But look more closely. He wanted his service to be so well received that it would help heal the breach between Gentile and Jewish Christianity. He's thinking big. He wants to survive for God's glory. He wants to survive for the health of the church. It was about others. It was about the life and health of the church. It was for God's glory. And he wanted to be delivered from the unbelievers in Jerusalem so that his ministry among the Gentiles might be continued with God's blessing, that is, to continue proclaiming the good news about Jesus Christ further and further out to the ends of the earth. That's what's behind his asking that he would be spared and asking that it would be a success. It's not to get stuff. It's not to, to float to heaven, as it were, on a, on a bed of roses. God, remove my suffering in this case. He's not praying that, although he has prayed a prayer like that, hasn't he? We'll, we'll refer to that in a, in a minute. And so Paul learned well Jesus' lesson on prayer. Remember Jesus' story about the unjust judge and persistent widow who kept coming to him until he finally gave her what she wanted, Luke chapter 18. Jesus did not teach that God is an unjust judge, but he wanted us to know that we should always pray and not give up. It does something to us to continue to seek the Lord's will, to continue to come to the Lord. 
It does something to us. It does something in shaping us praying. Jesus prayed. So did the apostles. So have all the saints through all the ages. We should not neglect it as we so often do. This constant scriptural call to prayer, this privilege to speak with our commander, our king, and our provider. Paul in prayer. Now two, the second point, this is verses 31 and 32, the requests themselves, the requests themselves. Paul was well aware that there was trouble waiting for him in Jerusalem and that the Jewish Christians there had had a difficult time accepting the validity of the Gentile mission and his own mission as apostle to the Gentiles, much less would they be willing to take money from Gentiles, as some might have thought it a bribe to get them to accept what Paul was doing among the Gentiles, you know, grease the skids, hey, take this money and just shut up. So there's all sorts of political and power issues going on. Paul's walking back into this, and he knows the dangers. In any case, Paul asks the Romans to pray that his gift from the Gentiles would be accepted by the Jewish Christians, that the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem would accept this, that they'd find it acceptable and good, and that it would indeed be God's will for Paul to be able then to come to Rome. He writes again, 31, 32, that, pray for me, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you in Rome with joy and be refreshed in your company in, in the church. So the two requests in verse 31 convey the content then of the prayer that he's praying, that he's inviting them to join him in. First, Paul prays that he should be rescued from the unbelievers in Jerusalem, non-Christian Jews, he's thinking, who had a particular distaste for Paul since he had turned against their understanding of Judaism. The book of Acts is replete with examples of this opposition to Paul, and at many turns, Acts chapter 9, chapter 13, chapter 14, chapter 17, chapter 18, chapter 19, chapter 20. Wherever he went, he was opposed by Jews, Orthodox Jews, non-Christian Jews, who hated his turn, his heel turn, as it were, in the wrestling world, his heel turn. His prayer for deliverance or rescue here refers to the preservation of his life. He, he thinks they're going to try to kill him again. It's happened over and over and over again in his journeys throughout the Mediterranean world. The Roman Christians are exhorted to pray for Paul's life because of his mission and especially his planned trip to Rome and beyond. We also know from Acts that Paul had good reason to, to ask for these prayers for his safety in Jerusalem. Not just the history around the Mediterranean, but in Jerusalem itself. After his arrival on this occasion, he was assaulted and nearly killed in the temple, Acts 21. 
During his imprisonment, a Jewish plot to kill him was foiled, Acts 23. And Paul ended up in Rome only by appealing to Caesar, by Acts 25. This is, this is his experience after what he wrote in Romans 15. Was the prayer for rescue answered? How would you answer that question? Was his prayer for safety answered, that his life would be spared? Well, it certainly was, but not in the way Paul anticipated. But his life was preserved despite the fierceness of the opposition. We should even see that Acts emphasizes that the Jewish opposition to Paul was the means by which Paul arrived in Rome. You'd not think that. You wouldn't have thought that. Praying the way he was praying and asking them to pray with him, you would not think that it would be because of threats to his life that he would get to Rome. That's not what you'd be thinking. You would have been surprised at how God sovereignly, providentially worked to answer this prayer. Paul's second prayer was that the collection for the saints in Jerusalem might be, he writes, acceptable. Acts again confirms Paul's concerns. He arrives in Jerusalem on this occasion then, and he's informed that many Jewish Christians were leery of him since reportedly his teaching undermined the Mosaic law, the law of Moses, and their understanding and usage of it. This is in Acts 21. James, the the Apostle James and company advised him to participate in a purification ceremony in the, in the temple to cool the concerns of Jewish believers, to show that Paul's with them. To, to the best of our understanding, we, we think he probably went through with this, Acts 21. And then the only firm evidence we have then is that the offering was accepted by the Jewish Christians for helping the, the Jewish Christian church, the church in Jerusalem, and perhaps many more people as the church served those in need. And so it's likely that Paul's prayer that the gifts for the Jerusalem saints would be acceptable was also answered affirmatively. Yes, Paul, yes. Does prayer work then? Someone, someone may ask. Yes, it's useful. That is to say, God uses prayer as a means by which He moves in His world and helps His people. The theologian Charles Hodge wrote in connection with these verses, quote, prayer and even intercessory prayer prayer on behalf of others has a real and important efficacy, effectiveness, not merely in its influence on the mind of him who prays it, but also in securing the blessings for which we pray. Paul directed the Roman Christians to pray for the exercise of the divine providence in protecting him from danger and for the Holy Spirit to influence the minds of the brothers in Jerusalem. And the unbelievers will talk about that. Hodge concludes, This God would not have done were such petitions of no avail. End quote. Another 
question. Does it always go the way it went for Paul? Yes, yes, yes. Well, you know that it doesn't. If then these prayers are answered, Paul recognized such answers as, verse 32, the will of God, the will of God. Prayer requests can go this way, as they did for Paul, in the affirmative, in the affirmative, in the affirmative, but in a roundabout or unexpected way, sometimes the affirmative comes, or we know that it's silence sometimes, or we know that the negative comes. No. Believers present petitions to God that seem wise and good to them at the time, yet God may not grant them. David, for example, asked God to spare the life of his infant son, and Paul himself asked for relief from the thorn in his side, the thorn in his flesh. But in those cases, neither of them heard a yes from God, did they? 2 Samuel 12 in David's case, 2 Corinthians 12 in Paul's case. And so even Jesus prayed, your will be done, and we should too. It's the humble thing to do. Make your request known to God, and then pray your will be done. And one more thing here from that Charles Hodge quote just before. And helped now a little bit along by uh, the pastor, former pastor, theologian John Piper, Prayer changes people's wills, or more accurately, God changes people's wills in answer to prayer. I think we can see that in the text, our text. Verse 31 gives Paul's two prayer requests again. The first one, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. And two, that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. So Paul had two concerns corresponding to those two requests. To the first one, he's concerned that the non-Christians in Judea and Jerusalem would kill him. And that'd be the end of it. And the good that he foresees coming from his ministry is is done. It's over. And two, that the Jewish Christians would find fault with his ministry and the offering and wouldn't receive it. It wouldn't be acceptable. Get that tainted money out of here. So Paul urges the Roman Christians 1,300 miles from Jerusalem to ask God not to let these things happen. The implication is that the will of the unbelievers to hurt Paul and the will of the believers to disapprove Paul's ministry and the gift are both within the power of God to mold and change. There would seem to be no point in praying for these two things if God could not accomplish them by changing people's wills. In both cases, the wills of people are involved, and the answer to the prayer is going to involve God changing those wills. In the one case, so that the ill will of unbelievers is restrained, God restrain evildoers. God restrain evil. And in the other case, so that the good will of believers is assured and sponsored. 
the commentator Matthew Henry wrote on this, quote, As God must be sought unto for the restraining of the ill will of our enemies, so also for the preserving and increasing of the good will of our friends. For God has the hearts of both of the one and the other in his hands. Do you know that? And do you pray knowing that? Why do you pray that God would save someone if you don't believe that, this? God has the will of man in his hands. And then verse 32, Paul anticipates coming to the Romans with joy because he anticipates not a vacation, but the sharing of spiritual gifts and blessings in the church. Therefore, the refreshment is, is not the kind of relaxation. He doesn't have in mind the kind of relaxation enjoyed during a vacation. I'm, I'm coming for a Roman summer. That's not exactly what he's, he's thinking. The refreshment really stems from the fellowship and joy that exists when members of the church mutually minister one to another, help one another, teach one another, support one another. And as we know, Paul wants to be sent by them. This will take some time. This will take some work. But his, his understanding is that given what he normally experiences and what he's now facing as he writes these words, time with the Roman Christ, the Christians would be sweet and restful. And he wants to come. Now point three, the last of three points and the last of the verses, verse 33, a benediction, a benediction. Finally, Paul ends his personal remarks to the Roman Christians with this benediction, this personal prayer request, a benediction at the end, pretty standard, but here asking the God of peace to be with all the brothers and sisters there, affirming the Gentiles and Jew, Jews who've all come to Christ, the, their unity. Peace be with you all and with those in Jerusalem until Paul can come himself and speak words of blessing to them directly. The verse reads simply, verse 33, May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. May it be so. The idea here, anytime Paul references peace, in a benediction, you may, you may think it's just a standard fare, like, a, like an email signature that's just tacked on, but it's really more than that. The idea here is that God is the source and giver of all peace. He knows that. Remember, he referenced their brotherhood in Christ as the appeal, the basis for the appeal for the prayers. Here again, we have the peace of God, and may the God of peace be with us. It's appropriate, too, given the tensions between Jews and Gentiles in the, in the churches. Paul's had a lot to say about peace in this letter. On a communion Sunday, we think about the kingdom of God being peace. He had told them that being justified by faith through the blood of Christ, that thereby we have peace with God. That's true for any who will come forward today who are professing Christians, who believe themselves on that basis, by God's grace, to have peace with God made by what those elements represent. 
the body and the blood. We have peace with God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And Paul had told them that their quarreling over foods and holy days must, must fall by the wayside because the kingdom of God is a matter of enjoying peace that we'll have forever together. And now as Paul faces an uncertain future, he has peace in his own heart and he wants the Christian friends at Rome to enjoy God's peace as well. He's written that the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. He himself was confident in God and his confidence was well placed. Paul's peace came from God. The kingdom of God is peace amidst terrible circumstances, uncertain futures, in Rome or in Jerusalem or wherever, God would be with Paul and with the Christians at Rome and with you, brothers and sisters. May the God of peace be with you all. And remember, peace is the final word of that great and commonly read benediction from Numbers chapter 6. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. But this isn't actually the the final word of Romans, is it? There's a whole chapter left. The prayer here at the end of chapter 15 precedes then the greetings, which largely fill up chapter 16. And as soon as we turn into 16, we're going to run into some issues we're probably going to want to address at some length. I won't spoil it. You can, you can look ahead if you'd, if you'd like. But let me close in this context of the peace won for us by Jesus Christ on the cross confirmed in His resurrection from the dead. Peace first with God through Christ's blood and then peace with one another. This was so important to Paul that he would risk and give his life to see the fruits of the gospel displayed in the unity of God's people. He's willing to go the opposite direction of Rome to display the unity of the church, Gentiles serving Jews, before he would ever turn around and go back to Rome and then beyond. But in that context, I guess I'll close with a call to not neglect prayer. Isn't that the main point of this text, prayer? By prayer, God calls us to join Him in shaping history in bending the wills of unbelievers and believers alike, in being one of God's means to accomplish His purposes in His world. And so we have been called, haven't we, by prayer to influence the wills of presidents and kings and senators and governors and mayors and city councils and school councils and so forth. Pray for your leaders. Pray what for them? that their wills would be bent towards righteousness. By prayer, we are to influence the wills of professors and writers and entertainers and editors and pastors and elders and missionaries. By prayer, we are to influence the wills of our friends and our enemies. We would pray to influence the wills of our children, our husbands and wives, fathers, mothers. We are called, in short, to glorify God in the world by asking God to save, to restrain, to guide, to guard, to preserve, to sustain. And we are called by God to bring before Him our requests on behalf of those we love, on behalf of our church, on behalf 
of our pastor, our elders, our servants, to pray for one another, to pray to God asking Him for success, for the gospel, for the church, for joy, not in sinfully self-seeking ways, but in ways that we discern would be for God's glory and our good and our joy in Him. And so Paul asked for prayer for safety so that the mission would continue. And so Paul prayed for success because he wanted to see Christ's name made great in the world. This gift of prayer God has given to us to participate with Him in these ways and more. Don't neglect this great work God has put into your hands, brothers and sisters. May we, may we use it. May we appeal to Him for His glory and our, and our good and the advancement of this great gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your wonderful Word in which we have a a respite, a break from our own dark thoughts and lostness in navel-gazing and being uh, pressured by the world. Instead, we open your book together and we hear the truth and it is refreshing and centering it leads to repentance. It leads to, to conviction and repentance. And then by your Spirit, we pray, it leads to growth. It leads to change. It leads to changing our, our ways, our, our habits. It, it changes our desires that we would want to, to pray to you more, our King, for resources, for requests that would glorify you and Spread the gospel. Help the church. And even now as we turn to communion, we pray that that itself would help the church today, that this church would be strengthened. The brothers and sisters would be moved to repentance and moved to great gratitude and joy that the price has been paid, that we are free in Christ to serve Him and to go and to live in this world that seems to be turning more away from you. Would you have your way then with all who cry the name, claim the name of Christ, and may we honor him and you, Father, as we remember the great sacrifice to pay for our salvation. It's in his name, Jesus' name, that we pray all things. Amen.